Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi there, I'm Lauren McGoodwin. Welcome to The Females, a podcast from Career Contessa that delivers helpful, actionable career tips and advice for women so you can be more fulfilled, healthy, and successful at work. On today's episode, we'll be sharing a discussion I had with Rosanna Duruthi, head of global diversity, inclusion, and belonging at LinkedIn. We'll hear Rosanna's journey from being a precocious child to a Harvard student at the age of 16 to suddenly becoming homeless and how her passion for learning helped her achieve her dream role in the C-suite. And now this is The Females. Before we talk about your career and the path that you took to become the global head of diversity, inclusion, and belonging at LinkedIn, I want to talk about your childhood. What were you like as a kid? I could probably say most would describe me as having been precocious. I enjoyed conversations with adults more than I enjoyed playing with kids. And I was one of those children who considered reading a privilege, not a punishment. My favorite book was the dictionary. So I was a little different. You were also way ahead of the curve in school. Didn't you graduate really early? I was really fortunate. My mom started teaching me to read early. So by the time I got to kindergarten, I already was reading. And when I was promoted to first grade, after a couple of weeks, I found myself really bored and disinterested. And uh, my parents had a conversation with the teacher and I was promoted to second grade. So I skipped early. And then in middle school, I skipped again. So I graduated high school two years ahead of my peers at the same age. I was 16 when I graduated, which I think was just a sign of my insatiable curiosity, desire to learn and always be learning. And I'm still pretty much that same kind of individual. I'm curious about a lot of things and like to read a lot and learn a lot and talk to people all the time. It served me well early on. And then you got into Harvard. So that (laughs) talk about serving you well early on. (laughs) So was it weird to go to college much younger than than other people? Or were you like, no, this is, you know, I'm used to always being younger than my peers in, in school. Well, actually, that's a really good one. I think I was really used to being younger than my peers. Perhaps getting into Harvard and going to Harvard was for me still a surprise. You know, my decision to go to Harvard came from the experience of seeing the movie Love Story. And I love 
romantic comedies. And while that wasn't a romantic comedy, it was a romance story. It was a romance story about two really smart people. And in particular, a woman who was incredibly smart. And so I was really young when I decided I'm smart. I want to be smarter and I want to go to the best school for smart women. So that's how Harvard came about. Uh, By the time I was a teenager, I knew I had to work hard to get into Harvard. But being 16 at Harvard didn't scare me. It was actually kind of exciting. I probably was doing things 16-year-olds don't normally do, and and we won't talk about them. (laughs) But all in all, I felt like I could keep up with my peers pretty readily. And my friends were always older than me. So it was really natural to be in a space where, by design, everyone I was surrounded by would be older as well. Mm -hmm. I heard on another podcast that you did that you said that you, you pretty much had your life mapped out at a young age. And I'm curious, what did that plan look like? I'm also a planner. So this is also, you know, a selfish question because I like to know. But what did that plan look like? And what career did you want to pursue? Uh, the best laid plans of a young person. <laughs> yes. So I had an early age, I had pretty much eliminated the careers that I knew I didn't want to pursue. My father was a doctor. And I decided I didn't want to be a doctor and and follow in the family footsteps. For a time, I thought that I would be a journalist. And it took seeing my byline in the senior year high school newspaper when we were promoted to editor to recognize I couldn't be a journalist either because there had been so much editing and redacting of my article, it didn't appear like my article. And I think I took it personally. And so my choice was to pursue a career in law. So I thought, I'll go to Harvard at 16. I'll graduate by 20 and go to Harvard Law School. And by 23, I'll be done with law school and I'll go work at a law firm and specialize in some form of international law, maybe entertainment law. I had imagined that by 35, I would be writing screenplays and I'd be working in Hollywood. And that by 40, I could be retired, incredibly wealthy and retired. Uh, (laughs) Yes. So... That, that was my plan then. I love it. <laughs> I love that you got all the way up to 40. <laughs> you know, like I feel like most 16 year olds were like, what am I going to do at 21? I love that your your plan all went all the way up to 40. As you said, the you know best laid plans of a young person. And a lot of us know life happens while you're making plans, which is exactly what happened with you. So talk about your transition of this life map going awry and, and especially with uh, leaving Harvard. Yeah. So, you know, Before 17, I had left Harvard due to the unfortunate demise of my parents' marriage. And during that time, you know, this is late 1970s, women didn't have the rights that they have today. And in fact, in the course of my parents' divorce, despite the fact that my mom had been working with my dad since she was 15, they married when she was 20. She had been married for 20 years. My father was able to influence people. And you know, I surmise money had something to do with it. He was able to have enough influence that when they divorced, my mom and I were left homeless. We literally were left with just the clothing on our backs. Wow. And we were fortunate to have, you know, friends um, who cared enough to give us a place to stay for periods of time and, you know, some of our extended family. But it was a journey. There was a little bit of a tailspin there in terms of, okay, what do I do to get back to Harvard? Because that felt like steady ground for me. All of this other stuff was just nothing I could have imagined and nothing that I quite knew how to navigate. 
And so there came a moment as I was approaching 18 that I recognized I just needed to work. You know, my mom and I needed to have a roof over our heads that we could with certainty call our own to have an address where our mail could be sent. And mom looked for work. It took her some time to find work because her only reference was my father. And that didn't go so well. And I didn't have experience, really. I had worked during my senior year in high school with a nonprofit organization in communications, but I didn't have discernible skills. I had never been a cashier. I had never bussed tables. I knew how to talk. I knew how to talk on the phone. I was comfortable writing. And I began working with first in advertising sales for a nondescript organization that sold advertising for numerous periodicals, basically weekly newspapers, monthly newspapers. I don't even know that those newspapers would exist any longer today. And from there, I had an opportunity through a friend that I made to go work at what was then known as a personnel agency. And these personnel agencies help people find jobs. And I was comfortable communicating with people. I think the experience of having friends who are older than me, friends who often sought my advice, came to me to share their sorrows and to help map out what they were going to do next, served me well when I went to work at the personnel agencies to help people find a job. Mm -hmm. And that became, you know, in some ways, the tactic became the strategy, you know, finding a job and being employed and being able to get an apartment again. My mom had to establish credit. And that was a time when if you were married and you didn't have credit in your own name, it was impossible to create credit and just learning lessons. I think that part of my career could almost be termed the chapter of learning all of these lessons through my mother's own experience of what happens when you don't set yourself up to be independent, what happens when financially you might be reliant on your relationship. Right. And so I was able to, you know, get on my feet and get this first job, not really having experience, but again, leaning into my own curiosity to learn from others, feeling comfortable around people who were older than I was and learning from them, allowing them to share their experiences with me. And in many ways, just finding my own way in that environment, even if it wasn't comfortable, I learned to grow comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I think in many ways that served me well in this life I've led. A hundred percent. And I'm I'm just kind of curious, since you did have life so mapped out before, and now you were kind of having a complete 180 with your life. Was there a time where you were mourning this, this past life of yours or how did not having this college degree that was obviously education had been really important to you and, and with your family, did that affect you in any way just with kind of having to move on to plan B or maybe C at this point? I think for a time, certainly I was looking forward to getting back to Harvard. Even when I left Harvard, I thought it would just be for a semester and a semester became a year. It became two years And it was about four years later, I was working in sales for a software training and education company, and I was getting ready to go back to Harvard. I had been in touch with the school. They had arranged financial aid for me. They had readmitted me so that I would be able to live in one of the dorms. And I received a call saying there's just 
one matter that has to be resolved before we can finalize things. And I said, sure, what's that? The matter was actually a little ironic. In my freshman year, my tuition was never paid. (laughs) So there was an outstanding tuition bill that I needed to pay. And it was nearly, at the time, it was about $10,000 for that semester. Now, I hadn't been making very much money. I was literally living paycheck to paycheck. And I couldn't arrange a loan to pay off the semester. And if I didn't pay off the semester, I couldn't resume my education. So I said, thank you so much for the opportunity to be considered and to return to Harvard. I'm not able to afford to pay that bill at this time, but I certainly would be happy to take responsibility for the repayment of the bill. And in that moment, I was 20 years old. I recognized I had been on this journey for years to get back to Harvard, and it wasn't going to be at that time. And maybe it would be at a future time, but the moment had come to give up on this thing called going back to Harvard and to really focus on how do I continue to grow and develop as a professional. Mm -hmm. So there was a moment where, you know, you give up the fantasy or the illusion and you recognize now the course is there to create a new, a new dream. Mm -hmm. And to be a part of the moment that you're in, as opposed to some fantasy about who you're going to be in the future. Uh, Because I recognized this was now my future. I was out of school almost four years. I was working and I was likely going to be working for a lot longer. So I needed to get smarter about the things I was doing and how I was making a contribution and making money to be financially independent for myself. Mm When my parents got divorced, I actually went through like not nearly as extreme of your experience, but I definitely had a similar experience where I thought this is why you're independent. You know what? You know, especially I was really close to my mom, too. And it was just interesting to watch like that experience from the other side. And it is interesting how, you know, you can have really (laughs) well laid plans, as you said, but certain experiences make you have a very real moment of like, This is the new plan, and I need to invest in that and and make this one work. I want to take a quick break to tell you about Hydrant. Hydrant is a wellness and water win-win. Did you know that proper hydration can bring mental clarity, mental and physical performance improvements, and it can also influence long-term health? Yet about 75% of Americans spend their days dehydrated. Dehydration means that we are suffering from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. If you can relate to any of those, I know I do with the headaches, guess what? It doesn't have to be this way. Introducing Hydrant. Launched in 2018, their team identified a need to develop a product that rapidly and effectively hydrates consumers. Hydrant are flavored electrolyte packets. P.S. They're delicious and refreshing that you can mix directly into your water to efficiently and effectively hydrate your body. Each rapid hydration mix has four essential electrolytes your body needs, such as sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. This precise blend of electrolytes found in their mix helps your body hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. For me, I found that adding hydrant to my daily routine really helps because I suffer from frequent headaches and migraines. Staying hydrated is not only important, but hydrant makes it easier and it tastes great. And hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by an Oxford scientist to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors, stevia, or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. 
Also, here's the really good news. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. Bonus, you can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com backslash females or enter the promo code females at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com backslash females or enter the promo code females, F-E-M-A-I-L-S for 25% off your first order. One more time, drinkhydrant.com backslash females or enter promo code females. All right, now let's get back to the show. It's interesting how very different circumstances, but kind of similar lessons learned from that from both of us. And I want to touch on, you know, quote unquote, being different and struggling to fit in and how that actually has helped you in in your career and building it up to obviously being a, a big time executive at LinkedIn. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. At an early age, I recognized that I was different um, reasons far beyond my control. My father was Cuban. My mom is Puerto Rican. I have a half-sister from my father's first marriage. She is African-American and Cuban, but she self-identified as Black at an early age. So I was growing up in a household with these different identities. You know, I was listening to R&B, which my sister listened to, but also listening to Spanish boleros that my mom played. I consider Spanish my first language. And linguistically, there are expressions in Spanish that aren't akin to what you hear in English. And elementary school for me was in another part of New York City. So growing up in New York City, my family lived in Queens, but I went to school in the South Bronx where my father and mother worked, where the practice was. And in that experience, I was the commuter kid. I was the kid who crossed a bridge every morning uh, to get to school, driven by her parents. All of my classmates lived in the neighborhood and walked to school. Because I was Hispanic but dark-skinned, it confused people. And that confusion often emerged in conversations that classmates would have about me. So I would have Black classmates who would talk about me in English, imagining that I didn't speak English. And it wasn't flattering in most instances. And they would be surprised when I would respond in English uh, to what they were saying. And I'd have classmates who spoke Spanish and not knowing me, they would speak about me in Spanish. And they would be surprised when I responded to what they were saying in Spanish. So at an early age, I was an outlier. I didn't know what that term meant. I just knew that I was different. And at home, I felt like I was different from my parents and from my sister. I was fortunate what was common for all of us was a love of education and a love of learning and a love of of reading. What was different was I was pretty calm and mellow even as a child. So watching, you know, whether it was disagreements that my parents had or disagreements that they had with my sister, I quickly learned to keep a really low profile and not get myself into trouble. (laughs) Smart. You know, it's kind of interesting when you're strategic enough as a kid to figure out how much you can get away with and what you definitely don't want to try even getting away with just so that you don't get yelled at because everyone seems to be getting yelled at at home. (laughs) But I think the other part to that was just having this experience of being different where my love of learning was continuously nurtured and fueled. And so I was fortunate growing up that, you know, 
we would have discussions at the dinner table that were really very mature discussions. Sunday night dinner consisted of discussing what we had read in the New York Times uh, weekend section. So every member of the family had as an assignment to read a section before dinner and we'd come to dinner and we discussed. It might have been politics or current events, um, civil unrest in you know, the civil rights era of the late 60s, early 70s, the Vietnam War, um, uh, an election. Uh, so early on, I learned to engage in those conversations, which you know most kids don't participate in and aren't even interested in participating in. And that began to embody this sense or ownership and even an empowerment around being different. It was okay for me not to be the same. Right. And then when I went to college and I was the youngest one and I was, you know, black and Cuban and Puerto Rican, feeling different wasn't a problem. Being female and being good at sports, I was a bit of a tomboy and it wasn't unusual whether it was in summer camp or spending the summer in Puerto Rico, where at some point some boy was going to get really upset with me because I'd make an amazing catch or I could hit the ball really hard and I would have a double that was unexpected. And so I was accustomed to surprising people. I was accustomed to being in some ways underestimated. And I found it was almost to my advantage to be different because people couldn't quite predict what I was capable of. And I usually was capable of coming in, learning quickly and outperforming. And that became a little bit of my own strong suit. Like I'm going to surprise you a little bit of, of how I operated in life. Yeah, I love that. I know we're going to skip ahead many, many years because you worked for a long time before you became the global head of diversity, inclusion, belonging at LinkedIn. So you're probably feeling like, hey, we're skipping lots and lots of years of work experience, but that's what you're currently doing. And I would love to see, well, one, can you just define what that role is? I think this is probably a role that at least the people who listen to this podcast have heard of before. But, you know, I think what's interesting is that it's not just diversity inclusion. You also have the word belonging in your job title. So it would be great to just learn a little bit more about what that really means. Yeah, I I love the belonging part of the work that I do. So many years of experience positioned me for this amazing opportunity to come to LinkedIn and be a part of a tech environment that not only wants to create greater representation, diversity in the way of how we represent people who come from different backgrounds and experiences and thoughts so that we can create and really be able to demonstrate the reality of a vision where every member of the global workforce is able to access opportunities. So our vision is to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. And diversity is something I believe is a path to get there. Inclusion is the experience that you have of being invited to the table, being invited into the conversation, being invited to be a part of the solution. But belonging is particularly unique. And it was one of the things that really turned me on about this opportunity. And belonging is that experience of not only being welcomed and feeling valued and appreciated, but really feeling like you own this, like being in that environment is not being in someone else's environment. It's creating your environment as well. And when LinkedIn asked me to take on this role, I thought long and hard. I was very happy in the role that I was in. I felt like I was making a difference, but I really loved the possibility of in some ways going back to where I began, which is helping people you know, find the opportunity for themselves. And 
it's been incredibly exciting to be a part of an organization that not only wants this for its employees, but what would it be like if each of us in life could have that experience of belonging? I often equate it with how do we suspend the anxiety that a high school student would have on the anxiety of going to a prom, worrying about whether you're going to get asked or not, whether you'll be asked by the person you really want to go with, or whether you'd have the courage to ask the person you really want to go with, showing up and having music played, and that it's the music you love, and that everyone dances with you. Mm -hmm. And life often isn't like that. Like you'll get the invitation, and then you walk in, and you realize you're the wallflower, (laughs) because you don't really like that music. And then they play the music you like, but no one else dances to your music. And so the experience of being alone or isolated can occur in so many ways in life, that if we could create this experience of belonging, how might that make life different for each of us to be self-expressed, for each of us to feel we can contribute to others, and for each of us to feel at ease in our own differentness. I love what I do. Right. No, I would I would definitely say this is a bit of a, a dream job, but also it's kind of interesting how it's come full circle for you too. I mean, you're you are it's like your job is your experience so far, all wrapped up with a, you know, an, a, an official job title. But like your whole life has kind of prepared you for the role that you're in now. And I'm curious, too, because I do think a big piece of what you're saying with, with the metaphor of like a high school dance with jobs. But partly what's challenging sometimes is I think people go after jobs that they think they're going to like or they think they belong with or they, you know, like on the outside, it looks great. Again, like the high school dancer who's like, I think I want to go to prom with that person. So I'm, (laughs) I I know this is like, maybe (laughs) I've taken the metaphor too far, but what do you find is helpful for people to actually, you know, self-reflect and understand what it is that they want first. So then they can go after that, you know, job or company that reflects that. Yeah. You know, I think the metaphor that as you stretched, it works really well because we often live our lives aspiring or wishing for things but there's a certain externality to the things we wish for. We don't necessarily take into consideration the ways in which we are talented and the ways in which we are powerful. And we're often dreaming about something that hasn't happened or or hasn't occurred in life. And I think if you're pursuing your dream job, it is really important to have a level of self-awareness about the things that motivate you. What do you get inspired by? What are the things that you know you do really well? And how do others receive those experiences? Because I think we all want to make a difference in one way or another. And I personally find it's not enough to go to work, spend your day in an environment with people you might not really care for, for the sake of collecting a paycheck. No matter how much money you make, you can't surrender your happiness. And yet so many people, I think, become either fascinated with titles or salaries. And those things are all valid and important, but they aren't necessarily enough to generate true happiness or a sense of satisfaction or a sense of purpose in life. And that's where I see people often struggling. They don't know what they do well. They don't know how they really make a contribution. And they're hoping that some environment will teach them about themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really hard thing to do. We're all creators here, right? Whether it's podcasting, blog writing, or producing your Instagram posts, creating content can get overwhelming. That's where Issue comes in. 
Instead of spending hours of your week formatting and reformatting posts for every platform, hand off your finishing touches to Issue. Issue is the all-in-one platform to create and distribute beautiful digital publications seamlessly, from brochures to magazines to sales collateral and much more. Using Issue, you can create content once and distribute everywhere. Just like that, your digital creation is ready to share on platforms like Instagram and Facebook. They can even help you animate your Instagram stories. Best of all, it's totally free to get started with Issue. Go to issue.info slash females to sign up for your free account. So that's Issue. They've got a unique spelling. It's I-S-S-U-U dot info slash females, F-E-M-A-I-L-S, to sign up and let them know you heard about it from our show. Remember, that's dot info, not dot com. So go to issue, I-S-S-U-U dot info slash females to set up your free account today. All right, now let's get back to the show. Well, since this is the the season of power, I have to naturally ask you to think back on your your career and life so far and what are some power moves that you've made? And we're defining power moves as those gut decisions that may have seemed counterintuitive or un, unexpected to, to you or other people at the time, but ultimately paid off. What, what are some power moves in your career and life? So there have been a few, and I think of them as career inflection points. Kind of like there's a moment where there's a decision to be made mm-hmm. and that decision determines your the next um, the next mile of your journey. Right. So I had been working for a bank for nearly nine years. Really good job, as we're often taught we're supposed to get and was being paid well. But I wanted to do something different. In fact, I was afraid that I would spend the rest of my career there. And, you know, ironically, earlier this week, I would have celebrated a 34th anniversary at that company. Wow. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful I left when I did. <laughs> and I left and I went to work for another company, it's still in financial services, but in investment banking. I had never known anyone who worked in investment banking. I didn't know very much about investment banking when I embarked on, on the interviewing for the position, but I learned what investment banking was about and what the challenges were and how the, how the business made money. And that first move gave me a level of confidence now about creating from the talents I had built as a human resources professional, a talent professional. I knew that I could recruit people. I knew that I could help teams solve the the talent challenges they had. You know, if a business builds a strategy, that strategy can't be realized without having great people. I knew how to find great people. I knew how to coach great people. I knew how to work with managers to build stronger teams. So I was confident about that. But leaving a steady job to go to another company, that was a bit of a risk and I was willing to take it. The second inflection point came uh, just a few years after that. Uh, I dreamed that that desire to be in the, the entertainment space could be realized, even from an HR angle. And I had a conversation with my then boss um, on the beach of Puerto Rico, (laughs) um, as we were setting up to recruit at the University of Puerto Rico, we were dreaming about the future. And the future I wanted to create was one where I would lead a talent organization from a recruiting standpoint, 
ideally with a media and entertainment company. And I was really fortunate. A headhunter had contacted her about just that kind of opportunity a couple of months after we had that conversation. And she passed the lead on to me. And that became my next role. And it was a big challenge for me and a stretch because I was now leaving the New York City area to relocate to work in an industry that I was unfamiliar with. And I stayed in that industry for about six years to reach the next risk or opportunity I was willing to take on. And that power move was to establish my own consulting practice um, because I felt I could make a difference for women, underrepresented groups, LGBT, in how they managed the career transition from manager to leader. And I had my own consulting practice for eight years when I was ready to take on a new challenge, which was becoming part of a leadership team in a corporate environment again, but doing it at a more senior level where I could have greater impact. Mm -hmm. So my restlessness usually yields a new power move. It's almost like having a superpower. Uh, (laughs) We're a big Marvel family. My kid is all about superheroes. So I've gotten to recognize that the things I do well usually result in my own superpowers. And my superpower is about making a bold move that makes a difference at a bigger scale each time. I love that. And another power move is you're able to to really define what it is that you want and go after it, which certainly clarity helps a lot. That's that's amazing. How do you define success today? I believe success is a, an extremely personal uh, word. So to define it would very much be Rosanna's definition of success. For me, success is being someone who makes the difference for others and making the kind of difference that people see the opportunity to pay forward. Right. So I don't necessarily spend much time taking into account how I've been successful, but I take great joy in looking at how people I've interacted with and met have gone on to make a difference in the lives of others through a conversation or work we engaged in together or, or being inspired and motivated in a way that they want to share that with others. Mm-hmm. I love that. What does power mean for you yourself, your career, and life? I love the word power. And what it means to me is the freedom to be self-expressed, the freedom to be responsible for the choices I get to make in my life. And that choice doesn't always mean you have options, but that you can own the moment and you can own what you create from that moment. That is the true essence of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's an excellent note for us to end on. I, uh, I obviously love the word power as well. And I, I think it's for all the reasons you said, and I especially love that when, when we just talked about success that you said it's, it's very personal. And I do think that's an important lesson because a lot of people will look around to see, you know, how they measure up to someone else's success. And so that's, that's an important lesson for us all to leave with. Well, thank you, Rosanna. This was amazing. Uh, so great to, to talk with you and learn about your story and uh, superpower, you said, and, and being able to take that power and really pivot your career and, and create something that you love. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much, Lauren. And thanks for the great work you do. You inspire all of us. Amazing. Thank you. Welcome to Dear Career Contessa, the part of the show where we answer your questions. Remember, if you have a career question, you can submit it to us via DM on at Career Contessa on Instagram, email us info at careercontessa.com, or leave us a voicemail at 844-FEMALES. All of that information is also included in the show notes. 
Today's question came to us via DM on Instagram. It said, Dear Career Contessa, how many promotions from the same company does one include on their resume? I've been at my current company for five years now being a content manager. My main career experience has been gained from this job. I'm 28 now and started at this company when I was 23. But does it look bad to only have worked one place since college as someone in their late 20s? I held two positions between college and this job, but both were part-time at various television stations, whereas content and marketing is my career objective now. So I'm even weary to include too much of my previous experience. Well, I really like this question because it's mm-hmm. it's one we haven't gotten a lot. And I think it's a very specific, detailed question that a lot of people have. And my initial reaction is this is actually great. I think, you yeah. know, one of the the things that people are actually a lot, really afraid of is job hopping, which mm-hmm. you, you don't have, you know? Yeah, because I was going to say, usually I feel like the questions that come in are like, how do I explain this gap or something like along those lines? So I think that honestly showing you've been at the same company um, is like a great commitment. It just shows that you've worked your way up in a company. Um, In terms of like the number of promotions, I mean, I don't know how much, how many promotions she's had in that time. Um, But I feel like the more you can include the better. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I think especially if you've worked at a company for a long time, so you've been there for five years, but I get this question from people who have worked at places also for like 10, 15, 20, you know, 25 plus years. I don't think it's a bad thing to show off. In fact, it's a really good thing, but the way you would do it is um, almost like if you were laying out your resume and you worked at, you know, five different jobs and you might put five different job titles and companies and they're all their own like specific call out on your resume, you can do something similar, except you don't have to necessarily like, I don't mind them being their own job and you would just repeat the company's name each time. So you, you mentioned that you've had a couple Oh, maybe she didn't say how many promotions, but if you've had three promotions in the last five years, let's just use that as an example, you would have them as like three unique jobs on your resume with their own bullet points. You could even include key takeaways. Now here's the key. I really like using or including a one to two sentence overview. So after you do your, you know, company name, your job title and the dates that you had that, I always like to include, you know, again, a one to two sentence overview. And that's where you could kind of explain or tell the story of like, you know, started in this role, then was promoted to XYZ in, you know, September, 2020. So the recruiter can kind of follow the storyline of like, okay, they started here and then they were promoted to this and then they were promoted to this for the job that you're doing right now, you know, you could maybe start that overview with saying like promoted to this role in March of 2020, focusing like to focus on X, Y, Z. I think for the current role, it's always important to kind of explain now, like what is your general overview of what you're doing there? So, and the first time you mentioned this, so like when you first mentioned, if the company's not well known, you could in your first little overview for whatever job you you had when you first started the company, you could give the, a little overview of what the company does too. Mm-hmm. So, and I think in terms of she's talking about like her previous experience about like part time jobs at like I guess not in the field that she necessarily wants to be now. And I think it's totally cool to leave those off because if you're just including them just to make your resume longer or seem like you've been at different places, it's probably not uh, going to be a great fit, especially if you want to tailor your resume to a specific like content and marketing. And so you clearly have enough experience to like talk about what you did under each role within the same company to show 
you know, how you would work as a content marketing person. Yeah. And, and the way I like to think of this is that your resume is going to be a snapshot of what experience you have that is extremely relevant to whatever you're applying to next. So it's not that you need to, you know, erase those part-time jobs from your life altogether. You could put those on your LinkedIn profile. Your LinkedIn profile can, can show your whole entire work history. So think of it that way too. It's like the resume is meant to be a snapshot. Your LinkedIn can tell your whole story. So hopefully that was uh, easy for you to follow. (laughs) And it's a, it's a great question. and, And one that we're actually asked not very often. So I like that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the females. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. We love hearing from you all. And if you want to read more about power women like Rosanna, pick up a copy of my new book, Power Moves, How Women Can Pivot, Reboot, and Build a Career of Purpose. In my book, I've included 10 interviews with a variety of women making power moves, including Rosanna, and so much more. So uh, it's a, and there's even really fun illustrations in there as well. So it was a, it was a really fun section of the book for me to write. So I'll link to Power Moves also in the show notes. And a big thank you to Rosanna Dorothy. You can learn more about her and the work that she does via the show notes.